Hey, materialists. Um, before we jump into episode 12 here in a second, we wanted to be sure to send all our good thoughts out to y'all's way and hope everyone is staying healthy and safe during these challenging days. As we all know, and we've talked about so much on this podcast, uh, archaeology is a branch of anthropology, and it's rooted in the basic understanding of the human experience. And though we take our role as educators about this social science very seriously, we try not to take ourselves very seriously. And the undercurrent of humor and lightheartedness we attempt to convey with the podcast by no means minimizes the severity or trivializes the experience of folks during this ongoing and scary historic event. We also recognize our privilege in this situation and know that those folks that have struggled the most historically in our society are being impacted the hardest during this pandemic. So from Becky and I and everyone at FPAN Central and West Central, we wish you all the best. Be kind, be patient, and be decent to one another. Keep up the physical distancing. I know it's hard. Listen to podcasts. <laughs> it helps. Take care, friends. Now on with the show. I was the only one left on the planet after the Holocaust, eh? Go! The Earth had been like devastated by nuclear war. Act! Lucky for me, I'd been off planet on vacation at the time of the war, eh? There wasn't much to do. All the bowling alleys had been wrecked. So as I spent most of my time looking for beer. One day, I was out looking for a nice place to build a city for my children when I spotted a mutant in the Forbidden Zone. I landed my vehicle to pursue and destroy this genetic freak before he could warn other mutants in the underground caves. I was kind of like a one-man force, eh? Like Charlton Heston in Omega Man. Do you see it? It's beauty. Fleshy-headed mutant, are you friendly? No way, eh? R radiation has made me an enemy of civilization. Alphabet, this is Bob McKenzie. I've spotted a fleshy-headed mutant in Sector 16B. Oh, take off, you holder! <laughs> Do you know what a fomite is? Oh, no. Like a foam noodle? One of those fun noodles? <laughs> no, like a pool noodle. <laughs> Very close, but no. <laughs> so a fomite, I think it um, fits well with our theme of our um, podcast episode today. A fomite is an object of contagion. 
It's an object that can spread disease. So think about... Like a vector? Is it the same thing as a Yeah, like a disease vector, but it's an inanimate object that's a disease vector. So think about like a water fountain that someone goes to drink from and then they contaminate it with their gross like spit and then someone else comes and drinks from it too. That's a fomite. So it's like a pencil or a pen or literally any object. So um, just that's cool because it's an epidemiology term that also relates to material culture. Yes, And yes. to our subject that we'll be talking about today, which is the archaeology of plague. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. Wow, a fomite. It sounds cute, though. You know? Yeah, like it sounds like a little, like it could be like, like a yeah. little fuzzy animal yeah. or like... Um, like a cool geological feature in a cave yes. or something, yes. like a yes. fomite. Mm-hmm. 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 Or a weird, like, religious sect. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably plenty of fomite religious sects out there. <laughs> wow. My dog's a fomite, I think. <laughs> At least she smells like one. Oh, my God. we wa- So when this first started, we're like, oh, we're going to watch um, some, like, epidemic movies because that'll be fun it's like oh, bad <laughs> idea why do we do this we watched um contagion yeah and there's actually a really good part of that movie when kate winslet explains what a fomite is oh really yeah. and that that one part where she is talking about how many times people touch their face in a day yes, that's the part <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so your face is also a fomite <laughs> so for this episode the archaeology of plagues yeah. We are recording. Recording. <laughs> oh my god. Was that a real cough or was that <laughs> Welcome to the Materialist Podcast. Episode twelve. Episode twelve. We are here. We're, we're all in this together, guys. Yeah, we're all, we're in, this all in this together. Yeah. <laughs> This started off as a special kind of impromptu episode, but it, it's been well-researched. And but then we did real research, yeah, and that yeah, was a real episode. That was a real episode. Uh, I am Nigel Rudolph, Public Archaeology Coordinator with the Florida Public Archaeology Network Central Region, and my co-host is... I'm Becky O'Sullivan. I'm the Public Archaeology Coordinator at the West Central Regional Center of the Florida Public Archaeology Network, which is now headquartered in <laughs> lovely Bradenton at my yeah. house. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. My, um, I, get, I suppose we've recorded the bulk of the materialist podcasts at my headquarters, um, so not much has changed with me in that regard. I am recording from my office in Gainesville, Florida. We're <laughs> Speaking from a great distance, unfortunately, yes. Becky We're and I. We're socially distant across the <laughs> unit the Zoom, the Zoomiverse. <laughs> the Zoomiverse, yeah, yeah. We're on theme. We're trying to stay on theme for this episode. Yeah, it's really on theme. Maybe yeah. a little too on theme. <laughs> yeah. If you think about it, we, us, all of us alive today, are the products of every person who survived all of the horrible plagues that have been inflicted on humanity across thousands of years. So we are the descendants of those survivors and those people who made it. So thank your ancestors because 
they lived and passed on all their really good like immunity genes yeah, to us. Superpower. So if they could do it, if they could survive like the Black Death and you know all that crazy stuff, then we'll yeah. we'll be fine. We yeah. can do it. All we got to do is stay f***ing indoors. Yeah. We just have to stay inside. <laughs> Not everyone has that luxury, but for right. those of us who do, this is true. Do it. Don't go to Target to buy like yeah. bubble bath or go to Home Depot <laughs> to buy dumb. Like help the other yeah. people who don't have that luxury. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But today, we're going to be talking about the archaeology of the epidemic, the archaeology of plague, and how yeah. ma material culture and archaeology relates to this uh, kind of ongoing interaction with the world around us. <laughs> yeah, so how do archaeologists study plague epidemics in the past? How have these past epidemics shaped culture and especially the material culture and even infrastructure of the world we live in today? And how does archaeology kind of tie all these things together? Yeah. And we got a great special guest, yes. um, very related to the subject, special guest. And we are very excited to have that. And I'll give a proper introduction later. But how are you holding up, Becky, in B-Town, Braden, Tucky? Pretty good. I mean, the same as everyone. I can't complain. Yeah. I feel very lucky that I have a job that I can do at my house. Yes. So I'm thank you. Know, thank you, I University really, of South Florida. Yeah. I really feel for all the people who who don't have that um, luxury. So hope everyone who can't stay at home or, you know, hasn't been able to work at home is uh, staying safe out there. Yeah, absolutely. There's going to be some big changes uh, on a societal level from this. Um, I hope um, for a lot for the positive. Um, but I think, um, you know, coming from an idea of small businesses, this is really going to impact a lot of people. Um, yeah. I'm afraid it's going to put the kibosh on uh, a lot of small businesses that may have been struggling before all this happened. And now they yeah. don't have any customers. We're doing our best to support the small businesses in our community, but uh, we're not going out, you know, so our, our reach as far as helping on a personal level <laughs> is pretty limited. Yeah. You know, but we're also hanging in there. Uh, one thing we really uh, need to be aware of, and I've covered this a couple times on some smaller Instagram things um, at the local cemeteries here, is that these types of epidemics and pandemics have happened before in our uh, society. Um, since the very earliest time that Europeans arrived here, and perhaps even before then, but we don't have any documentation of that. But certainly from the second Europeans, and perhaps even before they stepped foot on this land, um, the little critters that ta stick to us and come out of us <laughs> um, have uh, played a very, very serious role in the history of this state, particularly in regards to how these diseases impacted the indigenous population of Florida. But that's not just the only case, right? Like here in Gainesville uh, at the Evergreen Historic Cemetery, which is right down the street downtown Gainesville, we have the, the Yellow Fever Memorial, which is sort of a monument to the, some of the um, Florida militiamen that died in the 1889 Yellow Fever epidemic. 
that rolled through here and rolled through this part of Florida. And there's yellow fever or yellow jack uh, monuments throughout the state. So these kinds of epidemics were a big issue a long time ago. Now that is a mosquito-borne disease. Thank goodness for mosquito eradication. But imagine these things happening on an annual basis. Yeah, and just like you said, I mean, any community, especially like in the South, um, any community that has like a historic cemetery, you're going to see either, you know, a monument to some kind of um, epidemic, like yellow fever, or there are probably like burials there that are are from that time. (laughs) Right across the river um, from where I'm at in Palmetto, there's the the Yellow Jack Cemetery. There's like a whole historic cemetery that's in um, a neighborhood in Palmetto that is from that same time of the one of the yellow fever outbreaks 100 plus years ago. (laughs) Yeah, we are in a much different time, obviously, than than those those mosquito, those days of mosquito-borne diseases, but we're feeling the impact of this and it's very real. And as we're all sheltering in place, we can kind of reflect on this that, you know, these things will pass. But in regards to material culture, Miss Becky, how does the issue of epidemics and pandemics and plagues really relate to objects? How does it relate to material culture? Well, I mean, from an archaeology standpoint, there are lots of archaeologists who study epidemics and population health in the past. Um, So there are multiple examples, um, like in England, for example, of archaeologists finding plague pits, you know, cemeteries where people were buried from the various plague, bubonic plague outbreaks that happened in Europe, uh, whether it was in the, the 1300s, the the Black Death, you know, that killed, you know, like a third of Europe's population or whatever. 20 million people. (laughs) Yeah, or the um, plague outbreaks um, in the 1600s. And so, you know, one way that we as archaeologists can study these past events is through the actual physical remains of people who um, died in these epidemics. And sometimes we get really lucky and we can find DNA of the, the actual contagion that, you know, caused, caused that epidemic. So there are so many aspects of human technology and culture that can lead to these unintended consequences, which include epidemic disease. Yeah. And, you know, we're, I hate to use the word lucky, but here in Florida, um, we are, the the Spanish, when they arrived here, documented uh, much of what was going on at the time. And so there's good documentation about how the different sicknesses that kind of blew through Florida and impacted the indigenous population. And so in in towns like St. Augustine, there's lots of good documentation about how that happened. We're lucky (laughs) for lack of a better word, uh, that we have that kind of information to understand this kind of crazy facet of Florida's history. Right. And, you know, that's one of the other kind of, I don't know if interesting is the right word, but, you know, important aspects is not only is, you know, human culture and technology change is important in the beginnings of epidemics and these plague events, but the way that societies react to those epidemics can also lead to huge cultural change and technological change, which is important and interesting to look at as an archaeologist. Yeah, yeah. As we do in every episode, we try to bring a couple of objects to the table. My um, plague-related object is a mask. Ooh. Not just any mask, but, well, this one, it's not like a real, like, 
medical mask or something. Nobody like sent me mad emails because I didn't donate <laughs> <a> mask <laughs> yeah. to first responders or something. This is just like one that you get from the hardware store that we had already before all this went down. Um, but my object today is a mask. And so I found um, I read a really interesting article. It's called Plague Masks, the Visual Emergence of Anti-Epidemic Personal Protection Equipment. Wow. By Christos Linteris from University of St. Andrews in the UK. But it's um, the article is all about the history of medical masks, like specifically um, used for stopping or epidemics. But it's kind of looking at it in an anthropology way. So... Um, how did masks evolve over time and did people start using them for this very like kind of specialized use? So looking at them as an object of material culture in the way that we do as archaeologists. But um, so it's kind of cool. It talks about some of the history of masks and how people's ideas about uh, how contagions are spread kind of yeah. changes over time. Um, so if you look, if you like Google like plague doctor, you know, and you see that the picture of the the guy with the crazy beaked mask. Yeah, that's so crazy, that mask. Um, it's very famous when you like, I mean, people are wearing, you know, recreations of that in like grocery stores and stuff now. But to tell the, like what the purpose of the mask was, it's, it's totally different than what we think it is. Right, yeah. So today <laughs> we understand obviously that, you know, there are microscopic viruses and bacteria that make us sick. Right. right? Um, and so that you can get that from someone sneezing on you or from touching an object or that's infected or drinking bad water or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. So in the, in the 1600s, there were several different um, plague events that happened across Europe. And at that time, people didn't have that same understanding of how diseases were spread. Um, a lot of people thought that you could get sick by smelling a bad smell <laughs> or by bad air um, that would, um, you know, make you sick. Um, so like, think about like malaria, right? That's mal air, you know, it's like bad air. That's like what it comes from. So there is this idea that, you know, it was just these bad odors or miasmas that could like make you sick. <laughs> and so um, masks like the one that you see and with that plague doctor, it wasn't so much to, like I said, they didn't, you know, understand that there were these like viruses or bacteria that would make you sick. But the purpose of the mask was to hold herbs or, you know, something that smelled really strong and good so it can counteract those bad smells that would come in and you know, infect you and make you sick. So that beak would hold these like dried herbs or garlic or different, very pungent, you know, things that could fight off those bad, those bad smells. Right. So the, the mask itself was sort of a vessel to hold this other stuff. Yeah. That would make whoever was wearing the mask not have to smell all the rot and the stink and the death and, you know, the filth that was surrounding them. Right, exactly. And interestingly, people also believe that one of the things that could make you sick was actually being afraid of being sick. So your fear, <laughs> your fear of sickness would like infect your brain and cause you to become sick. And one of the thoughts was too that these um, these masks, you know, seeing a doctor wearing like 
one of these masks or seeing the, the people coming to take the bodies to the plague pit could infect you with that illness. So your fear of that mask that the doctor is wearing could cause you to become sick with the plague just (laughs) in and of itself. Oh, thank God for science. (laughs) Science. But that kind of makes me think of, um, you know, when the, um, like in 2014 or whatever with the Ebola outbreak and you see the, the doctors who are in the full, like, PPE like hazmat suit um, and the patients would be really freaked out by it because yeah. it's like this person like in a moon suit you can't even barely see like who's there and so doctors started like writing their names like on the front of it so that mm-hmm. to kind of create that human connection again so that kind of mm. made me think of it's like similar kind of a similar thing in a way. Yeah, I think definitely from a, a psychological perspective, if I if I was somebody that was sick and I didn't quite understand what was going on and I was terrified for my own, you know, mortality, and then I see this person walk in that looks like, you know, I'm some radioactive monster wearing this, this complete hazmat suit, that would really, that seems like that would like intensify the anxiety a little bit. Which is obviously like, you know, that doesn't cause you to have Ebola virus. No, no, but still. The point is that when we're thinking about masks, especially when it comes to medical masks and um, trying to get people to uh, use good practices to not get sick or make other people sick. It's not just a question of like a public health question, right? Like, does this mask work or does it not? We also have to think of it from like an anthropological standpoint. So how, um, how is this mask like signaling to other people um, how, what's the effect that it's having like psychologically on other people yeah. um, and that sort of a thing too. There is a psychological element to this. And like you said, that's not going to really have any impact at all on how the disease moves around through the society, but it certainly has a big impact on our mental health. And I think as we're all kind of cloistered up in our houses for, um, you know, however long it's going to be. Our mental health is like a real big part of this issue. And it's something that, you know, has to be part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as we get into the late 1800s, (laughs) and so we get to these new, uh, medical technologies like hand washing important things. Um, but it wasn't until around um, 1910 that we start to see medical masks used to stop the spread of contagion in these epidemics. In 1910 there was a, this an outbreak of pneumonic plague which is plague but it's spread through the air and so it's like almost like a hundred percent death rate. Oh my gosh. So there's this outbreak of pneumonic plague in this border region of China. Um, and so this, this Chinese doctor, Wu Liande, um, was one of the first to actually start using surgical masks, which had only been kind of introduced like 20 years before to help stem the outbreak of this pneumonic plague, because he thought that it was spread um, through the air in that way. So there are these other doctors, there was a doctor from France who was there and he was like, no, like it's not spread through the air. It's like only spread by rats. So you don't need to worry about it. But this Chinese doctor was making everyone wear surgical masks and it actually helped to, to stem the, the outbreak. But, um, one of the other interesting aspects 
is that um, that they were using the mat like the masks. They're not just they're not just a utilitarian object. They're mm-hmm. not just for stopping the spread of disease, but they are also a signal of of kind of this idea of medical reason and modernity. And so in this 1910 outbreak of pneumonic plague, the um, Chinese officials, were they weren't just using the masks to stop the spread of the epidemic, but it was also, they were also like taking all these press photos of all the doctors with the masks and the patients. And it was this way to show the rest of the world that they are a modern, you know, they have modern medical techniques and modern technology and, and, you know, have this hygienic kind of model um, just like these other countries and in, in the rest of the world. So these masks are, um, they're a way that we kind of can signal to others that we're taking this seriously so that, yeah. you know, we're we're trying to protect ourselves and others. So no matter whether your mask is actually useful or not, the one of the main ways that it's useful is signaling to others that we are taking this seriously and that we're trying to do what we can to help stop the spread of whatever disease. That's a really important point. Like the psychology goes right along with with all of it. So very cool. So <laughs> my object, <laughs> my object is also extremely important um, <laughs> to society. My object that I'm bringing to the table <laughs> is toilet paper, toilet paper. There it is. That's a hot commodity. Yeah, it's a hot commodity. We see everywhere, uh, particularly at the beginning of the uh, pandemic when it came to this area, um, well, e- even overseas, this crazy run on toilet paper. Yeah. It totally blew me away. I don't quite understand it. Like a case of toilet paper should be plenty <laughs> for like everybody. Um, yeah, but- we're down to five rolls. <laughs> well, that's true. But it's, uh, it's definitely something that is taken serious. And so just to really briefly go through the history of, you know, what toilet paper is, I think it's often taken for granted. And I think that's fine. I think it's fine to take things like that for granted. We live in a privileged society. And so we can take some things for granted. But it was originally being created in China in the 6th century AD, uh, but it was primarily only used by the elites. Uh, It was first commercially packaged in 1857 by a guy by the name of Joseph Gaetti. And what was kind of interesting is the uh, the toilet paper that he put on the market was very expensive. It was actually treated with aloe and was oh. little, and it had his name printed on it, which was kind That's of funny. like you can get that now. Get the yeah. with aloe or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was a, it was sold as a medical product to help to help prevent hemorrhoids for itchy butt. Yeah, for itchy butt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And it was very poorly made, uh, really, until around the 1940s. Toilet paper that you could buy in the store commercially um, would often contain, like, splinters from the wood that it was made. Oh, my God. Extremely uncomfortable. Um, I found this on a a plumbing plumbing website, uh, the history of toilet paper. Very, very interesting, but... The history of toilet paper is one thing, but there's also a history to the hoarding of toilet paper and this uh, panic that 
sets in and that people's first reaction is to buy toilet paper. This has actually happened before. Um, so in 1973, in the United States, when Richard Nixon was president, um, there was a recession, there was massive fuel shortages. A politician made a completely unsubstantiated statement um, in the newspaper and said that there might be a toilet paper shortage because there was all these other shortages that were happening. Right. And it was completely unsubstantiated. There's, there was no toilet paper shortage at all. Um, but then that evening, a very famous person by the name of Johnny Carson kids, if you don't recall uh, the, <laughs> the original creator of the tonight show, the original host um, was a guy by the name of Johnny Carson. <laughs> he, um, he, <laughs> yeah, for you kids out there, um, he made a joke about this. He made a joke about a toilet paper shortage. This completely blew up. People went out and started hoarding toilet paper. Um, and so the shortage was created based on misinformation. So there was, there was absolutely no like shortage of toilet paper. Toilet paper wasn't going to run out just because fuel was hard to come by. Uh, <laughs> um, but because of the misinformation that was out there, people went out and started hoarding toilet paper. So in 2020, this latest kind of hoarding and panic really seems to have started in Hong Kong. Uh, and they actually have it narrowed down to February 5th, a tweet that was sent out by somebody in Hong Kong that said there might be a possible shortage of toilet paper in the city of Hong Kong. And, uh, Quote, it started with sensible advice from authorities to stock up on food, toiletries, and prescription medication, but that simple message backfired spectacularly because it's so hard to predict how people will respond, unquote, and that people just started hoarding toilet paper. And so that spread across the world. And we see all the videos of people walking out of the grocery stores with, you know, carts full of toilet paper. Yeah. Apparently, uh, the worst hoarding and panic was in Australia um, and there was violence related like you know but like Australia it's just like all the animals there will yeah. like like the yeah. people there it's like America on steroids like yeah. it's just, it really is. <laughs> it's really it is. no offense to anybody from Australia it's I very much want to go one day um, <laughs> one day one day <laughs> just make sure we'll wait a little while while until TP stockpiles can uh, build back up but toilet paper material culture all wrapped up in the panic of all of this so what do you think i don't know what does that mean looking at it like as an archaeologist you know thinking about these like commodities and like how um i don't know people don't usually ever think about like how much toilet paper they have in their house yeah. for, like the last roll but i don't know what do you yeah think? i i i I think it's really interesting from an anthropological sense, obviously like the material culture itself, you know, unless after all this is said and done, you still have four or five cases of toilet paper. Um, it, it all goes away, right? It all yeah. <laughs> gets flushed down the toilet, hopefully. And so I think it's really interesting to see how people per particularly pick, uh, pick what is important and what isn't important, right? There's videos of people out there stockpiling toilet paper before they were stockpiling food. You know, right. it's, it's like what, what makes this one object, why is the reaction to this one object and the hoarding of this one object completely overblow things like making sure that you have milk or making sure that you have enough to eat? Um, yeah. You know? 
I think in that sense, our objects have um, a lot of commonalities. Because I think that in both senses, you know, it'd be like, okay, just like you were saying, like, if you go online now, there's all these like how to's of like how to make a mask and like you see like craftivism, you know, craftivism, like people making masks and like giving them to like nurses and first responders and whatever. And you can debate how useful that is. But I think whether it's like a run on toilet paper or this kind of like run on masks, it's this sense of control. And so yeah. if you have like a stockpile of toilet paper at your house, you feel like you have a measure of control in this world. You feel like you're providing like for your family because at least you don't yeah. have to worry about toilet paper. And it's the same with masks too. Yeah. That making a mask out of like your old boxer shorts or something, <laughs> like it's probably not that useful, yeah. but it gives you a sense of control in a time when we have control over almost nothing yeah no that's a great point i mean um when everything's said and done you know you at least have the toilet paper situation figured out right <laughs> yeah, if you're signaling to other people that you like are a provider and like mm-hmm. have you know you have like provided this bounty of toilet paper for your family or whatever yeah <laughs> but in in reality folks uh, there's no shortage of toilet paper there's plenty of toilet paper in the world you know you're fine you're good you're good if you only have five rolls might it it probably be good to go get a couple more but <laughs> you know there are all these also really amazing inventions called bidets that apparently yeah. work wonderfully i'm just gonna go like roman style i'm gonna put like a sponge on the end of a stick and then you put mm-hmm. the sponge in vinegar and wipe your yep. butt with that you know corn cob yeah maybe a yeah. corn cob yeah. Um, get the old Sears catalog. So many options. So many yeah. options. <laughs> that's, that's the beauty of archaeology is you like understand all these ways that people did it in the past. Yeah. So yeah. Yep. Other options. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go ahead and introduce our special guest for the episode. Dr. Charles Cobb is the James E. Lockwood Jr. Professor of Historical Archaeology and Curator at the Florida Museum of Natural History here in Gainesville. He was teaching a course. The one reason that brought him to our attention is that he, he taught, he's taught a course on plagues and people. And so we immediately, um, after a recommendation to holler at Dr. Charles Cobb, uh, we did so. And so he's going to be coming up and discuss uh, the, you know, the nitty gritty of the archaeology of the pandemic. Yeah, we got the syllabus and did all the readings and everything. Yeah. So we're yeah. good students. <laughs> uh, good students. Let's make welcome Charlie Cobb. The pipeline. My interests largely are nowadays anyway in the kind of the intersections between Native Americans and Europeans and their cultures, 1500s, 1700s, throughout the southeastern, what is today the southeastern United States. So what what prompted your interest in that that kind of intersection between Europeans besides the fact that it like you know completely changed this part of the world. Well, you know, in large part, that is it. I was, you know, when I started my graduate career, I was interested in uh, uh, so-called Mississippian cultures. And for those of your listeners who may not be archaeologists, these are the big mound building cultures we associate with the Southeast that start around 81,000 up to contact times. And these are the people who live on the big mound sites like Etowa or Moundville or Cahokia and so on. And then, uh, but these are the people that are encountered by the Spaniards and other Europeans in the 15 and 1600s. And um, so like a lot of people who do Mississippian archaeology, you read a lot of European accounts to kind of 
learn what Mississippian peoples live like. You know, as you read the literature those times, from the European accounts, uh, you're struck that no matter what your interest is, whether, you know, material culture, languages, or whatever related to the colonial era, era that constant drumbeat in the background is disease, right. disease <laughs> catastrophic disease, losses of Native Americans is, is just astounding. You know, this is something that the uh, Europeans kind of took for granted. You know, they had a long-term disease experience, the pandemics, obviously. So you see these, these paragraphs are kind of shocking by today's perspective where you'll see an account from South Carolina in the late 1600s where it's like, and oh yeah, smallpox epidemic swept away all the population in the interior. And then they move on to another topic as if that were nothing. And you're just right. like, oh my God, yes. Yeah, like, so, uh, so it's very sobering to read those accounts. And then I, I can't say that I'm a, a, like an archeologist of disease. It's just mm -hmm. something you always have to factor into your work. Mm -hmm. But I have done some work uh, with some colleagues in the past couple of years. Uh, so-called bioarchaeologist. And a bioarchaeologist is a biological anthropologist. It's a person who specializes in human variation and evolution. Uh, but their, their data tend to be human bodies, particularly occasionally soft tissue, but particularly skeletal materials. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've been working on a project with some bioarchaeologists in central Tennessee with Mississippian populations were, well, this would be 1400s or so, where warfare is very common. People are living in... Uh, these palisaded villages, they're really packed in there. And we've been very interested in um, how warfare is kind of a cultural catalyst for disease. In other words, mm -hmm. you're sitting in these palisaded villages, you're crammed in, you can't get out on a regular basis and, and hunt and gather and farm uh, to get a balanced diet. And how does that lead to kind of a condition where immunocompromised? And so you start seeing the introduction of diseases to Native Americans like tuberculosis, Treponemal diseases, which are variants of uh, syphilis and diseases are related to syphilis and so on. So I'd say that's kind of my main angle on disease personally that I've taken. But for, gosh, about 20 years now, I've, I've taught a class on kind of the anthropology of plagues and epidemics. It was all started by this interest in diseases that started about 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. wow. So this might be, I mean, this is like an obvious question, but maybe not for some of our listeners. Why was it that, you know, when Europeans arrived on the scene that we have this, these horrible epidemic events that were affecting Native people, but weren't affecting the, the colonizers and the Europeans who were coming yeah. over it's a, into the Americas? It's a terrific question. And it's a, <laughs> it's a question that paleoepidemiologists or people who study disease in the past have have debated for decades, if not centuries, and they've kind of come up with kind of a, a kind of a multiple variable kind of hypothesis for may that, why that may be. And one is that you have, of course, the Americas and the Eastern Hemisphere have been separated for 12 or 13 or 14,000 years. So a lot of the diseases that are pandemic in nature, the particularly virulent or deadly diseases, seem to, not all of them, but a lot of them seem to have evolved after the separation of Americas, after the Ice Age. Another one is that there are certainly some, were some huge cities in the Americas, like Teotihuacan probably had close to half a million people in central uh, Mexico at its peak and so on, but you don't see the kind of 
the sprinkling of massive cities and population density across the Americas like you did in the old world. So, um, and of course, a lot of diseases that are pandemic are, are, are density dependent. They lack a lot of hosts packed in a small area. Okay. Uh, and then in addition to that, you a lot of the really deadly diseases, not all of them, but a lot of them are zoonotic. And by zoonotic means we got it from animals. Pigs, animals. yeah. So domestication of animals has been a killer, literally, for humans in a lot of ways. And what we'll see, what you look at in the history of diseases, it's, there are always inadvertent consequences to, to kind of cultural leaps forward, if you will. So domestication animals has been great for having pets, security <laughs> <laughs> pets when you're flying and that kind of thing, for eating and what have you. But, uh, you know, the diseases that come from animals like flu and the poxes and so on have been incredibly deadly. So um, Native Americans had not been too exposed to a lot of those diseases. And so one way of looking at it is Europeans had been sick a lot longer from an evolutionary perspective, had developed more robust immune systems as a result to a lot of these diseases that Native Americans had been exposed to. So the term that's used by a lot of epidemiologists and Native Americans were subject to virgin soil epidemics. And really bad disease, but I mean, smallpox is at the top of the list, no question. It was yeah. a massive killer, but measles, influenza, and the other bad thing, it wasn't all at once. It's this constant cascade of diseases through the decades and the centuries. So it was almost relentless on Native American populations. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting, the work that you're doing in Tennessee and looking at the palisaded Native American um, villages. And I wonder if you're going to start identifying the commonalities that we see in Europe when those um, very densely populated communities were living in, you know, really close together, lots of people. But I, I would be really interested to, to hear, like, if, they're, if you're starting to notice how those diseases come into be and if there's a similar pattern that's happening between densely populated places in one continent versus another continent. You know, I think that's been one of the frustrations for people who are wanting to see, look for epidemic disease among Native American populations in the kind of the late pre-colonial times into the colonial era is uh, it's frustrating the absence of clear evidence. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, one of the, some of the things you see in like bubonic plague cemeteries in the 13 and 1400s that have been noticed by medieval archaeologists is that um, Christian cemeteries, of course, are very orderly. They tend to be laid on a grid pattern and so on. And one of the things that some archaeologists record is you start seeing these graves being built willy-nilly and that kind of thing. Uh, Christian cemeteries were you're seeing in effect anxiety reflected in the archeological record mm. as well as concerns with labor and so on. Um, you really don't see that in the archeological record. Now what there's been incredible breakthroughs in uh, you know, molecular anthropology and DNA research and so on. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're starting to identify plague cemeteries, not only by location, but looking at tooth dentine and that kind of thing in medieval mm -hmm. cemeteries. Nowadays with, uh, you know, with NAGPRA, with the Native American Graves Protection Repatriation Act and that kind of thing, that kind of research in many respects has been curbed, is frowned upon and so on. So you're probably not going to see a whole lot of work along those lines in Native American populations. Yeah. How has um, your, your work in uh, epidemics and diseases archaeologically kind of framed our current situation? Like, what do, you, do you have any thoughts about, like... Has it made you think about it differently? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you know, this 
happens, like we're all going to be fine. Or it's, it's like, kind of funny, you know, it's kind of, as I tell you, I taught this class forever. I wish I was teaching it this semester. And like, <laughs> say, I told you so, I told you so, yeah. I told you so. And, you know, what, what, what I, one of the things I try to point out to my classes is that we've had these huge debates over the last 10 years about health care, Affordable Care Act and that kind of thing. And in many respects, as I point out to my classes, I think it's been pitched so overly simplistically in the political sphere. And it's always portrayed as the individual and his or her physician. Mm -hmm. You know, can you come up with health care to go to a clinic, to go to a doctor because you've got a cold, uh, you know, because you're pregnant and so on. And how's that going to get paid for? But it's another macro level that resides above that. And that's the public health care system. And you don't really see a whole lot of attention given to that. And that's what styming plagues is all about. I mean, by the time you go to your doctor to get taken care of for coronavirus or whatever, I mean, the epidemic has already hit. So the question is, how do you stymie epidemics? So there's another debate that we've yet to have in the United States, I think, a serious one anyway, and that is what are we willing to invest as a nation in terms of stirring up supplies of, you know, these, these personal production equipment that's running short now, you know, gowns, gloves, and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Who's going to pay for that? Mm-hmm. Where are we going to store it? And so on. And that I'd like to think is a bipartisan issue. Um, and, you know, you look in the past and you do see that there are attempts to deal with, you know, there's a slow evolution through time. It's reflected materially as well as in the accounts of, how communities have kind of come to grips with that. And, you know, one of the constant things you read in the, in the articles today is the notions of a quarantine. And then who's ever writing quarantine feels obligated to say, oh, by the way, quarantine comes from the Italian quarenta for 40, which means a 40-day stay, um, which really became big during the days of the Black Plague where people would be, you know, <coughs> excuse me, forced to stay inside. And it does seem to be that, appear to be that there were some effects to the positive effects to that. And we look at the bubonic plague in the 13, 1400s, there's a lot of differential mortality across the landscape. And what some medieval archaeologists and historians have found is that there are certain towns like Nuremberg, Germany, for example, who did have notions of the idea that, um, you know, you can't leave animal offal in the streets. You can't be dumping your urine out of your second floor windows. <laughs> you know, they, they did have some notion of public health right. and they had much lower plague mortality than other cities did. So there, there's clearly, a, you know, there is a materiality to this that this plays out that it not only reflects, you know, the impacts of plagues, but also some materiality of how are plagues stymied at the same time. Hmm, interesting. So you kind of touched on this a little bit already, um, but getting into the um, technology and material culture changes, um, you know, what we're looking for as archaeologists, it seems like, you know, sometimes these changes in technology can set up the circumstances where we have an epidemic or, you know, outbreaks, like changes in ways that people um, live in agriculture and those sorts of things. But is it also possible that these epidemics and these plague events kind of can be an opportunity for um, for change and technological change after that epidemic event as well? You know, yeah, I think you're right. And first of all, to come back to your point that there are uh, always the unintended consequences thing again. So, mm-hmm. you know, one of the kind of cultural responses you to see to plagues is um, – so-called anthropogenic changes to the environment or human-induced changes to the landscape. And so um, 
one of the most, I guess, large-scale approaches you would see in, in that category to deal with plagues are the draining of swamps and wetlands to get mm. rid of mosquitoes. So that's something that's been really big in the past 100 years or so when it's been recognized that mosquitoes are a major vector, particularly malaria and yellow fever, even into the south, well into the 1900s or whatever. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that, that even before, you know, the germ theory of disease didn't become widely accepted to the mid to late 1800s. And I'll come back to that point because it comes back to your question. But, uh, you know, before that, the most prevalent idea for the spread of disease was miasma, that these stenches and stinks and so on were mm-hmm. what spread disease. And those also were intimately associated with swamps. So you have people draining swamps, and at least in Western culture, going back to European times where hmm. And even though the hypothesis may have been wrong for the source of disease, you still have the happy effects because you've reduced the mosquito population. Right. Hmm. But you've also destroyed one of the most important parts of the environment for dealing with floods and that kind of thing, and that is you're killing the wetlands. So, you know, that's, that's definitely... Uh, but, you know, I would say, I guess on the happier side, again, a lot of the things you see, I think, that are obvious to us as archaeologists are changes in the built environment and the landscape that being one of them. Another one would be that, like, uh, uh, you know, the, the germ theory of disease had been around. It's really starting to catch on the late 1700s. It was picking up in the 1800s. But the miasma theory held on strong to a significant portion of the 1800s. You know, the, there's a small group of crazy people who thought, you know, thought there was something called germs out there. <laughs> but, you know, by, even by the early 1800s, people like Lucas Stewart, they thought they were complete nuts, the larger medical community. But it was slowly catching on among the more scientifically minded. And, um, you know, what's considered the, the kind of the, the break point, if you will, was uh, John Snow, who's kind of considered the father of epidemiology, even though he didn't originate the germ theory of disease. There were ma- massive cholera outbreaks occurring in the mid-1800s in Europe. And cholera is a typically a waterborne pathogen. It's a mm-hmm. bacterium. It's a gut disease. It uh, makes people incredibly sick, very high virulent. So there are massive these waves of cholera epidemics and pandemics in the 1800s. And he did something that to us today would be a no-brainer in terms of research. It falls right in the line of geographic information systems research. And that is looking at a map and looking at cases. And he was... He was mapping in the, uh, the prevalence of cases in, in London in 1854. He's like, wow, I see this huge concentration right here in town. What, what's going on there? So he goes down there. He sees there's a common pump, which was common in those days in London. You had these neighborhood pumps that everybody drew from. Mm-hmm. And he noticed that seemed to be the locus of the outbreak. And he's like, wow, what if we shut down the pump? And he shut down the pump. Don't drink from this anymore. And the incidence of disease of cases dropped dramatically. And they later found that there was a sewage was leaking into that pump. Into that <laughs> That'll do it so, every time. Um, so what you see there in, in terms of there's, I mean, it's slow to catch on, but it's just a dramatic change in infrastructure cities, which is, of course, great interest to historical archaeologists. Mm-hmm. And that is you see the implementation of sewer systems, for example, mm. and common dumping areas. And so if you're a historical archaeologist, that's a loss in some ways, because what is a, what is a historical archaeologist? Archaeologists like digging more than privies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> in a way, you see a loss there. In a way, you see a loss of privies, and that is people digging their, uh, you know, dumping all their garbage in, in their bathroom in the backyard. So there's a, there's a, dr- a slow but ultimately very dramatic change in infrastructure throughout cities as, as a result of the. And I would say that it wasn't only cholera that led to that, but other some other waterborne pathogens like typhoid, for example, mm-hmm. also was important. Had very important change in worldview. 
Do you see archaeologically, or perhaps in the historical documentation by the Spanish, that they recognized the illness that was coming to the Native Americans and took advantage of that? Like, they were like, okay, this disease is wrecking the political infrastructure of these cultures, um, and uh, we, can, we can see that as an advantage to our greater idea of taking over this area. That's interesting in the sense that um, you almost have to phrase that question in terms of uh, the different colonial experiences in the Southeast. And by different colonial, I mean the different European powers. Mm-hmm. So the, um, the Spanish kind of famously tried to keep the Native American structure intact. Uh, so they, they wanted these chiefdoms that were still organized around mission systems because they really need, because they were so short of... Uh, human power, the Spanish mm-hmm. were, mm-hmm. they really needed Native American societies intact as a feeder system for St. Augustine and, and uh, you know, the infrastructure of the Florida colony. But if you look at the French and the English, they were more happy to take advantage of that. And of course, not every disease they recognized, but certainly many like smallpox, English knew exactly what they were dealing with. And uh, kind of there you see the seeds of manifest destiny. Hmm. And that is, there's a lot of variation of the saying, uh, gosh, you know, we're really having a really hard time colonizing this era, area, and we had almost given up, uh, but God saw the problems we were having, and he saw fit to visit disease upon the Native <laughs> Americans. They were swept away, and thus the land was left ripe and fertile for us to overtake. So, right. yeah, you see, you see that, you see that, uh, paraphrases that literally throughout the Americas. The first quote I've seen to that effect is in the 1500 Spaniards talking about uh, smallpox epidemics overtaking the Aztecs during mm. the landscape. But I have to say the Spaniards, because they were so intent on keeping the mission system intact, they almost had a different perspective than the English. They, they saw that as a huge loss. Mm-hmm. And they weren't tur- turning them into Catholics, and they were losing the labor force. Right, like right, right. Yeah, and absolutely. so, you know, they were very attentive to taking censuses and numbers and that kind of thing. So... You know, you, you know, it's hard to believe their numbers entirely because, in, you know, in the 1620s, the, the Franciscans are saying, you know, they've, I don't know, they've, they've Christianized 20 or 30,000 individuals, and those are numbers you really want to port back to the Vatican because that looks great. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was certainly a lot. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you, you, roll, you roll the numbers forward, and John Worth, you know, our, our colleague, University of West Florida, mm-hmm. he's looked at the numbers of the Native Americans who got on the boats with the Spanish in 1763 when they ceded Florida to the English. It's like less than 100 Indians, 100 mm-hmm. less than 100 Native Americans. Absolutely shocking. Now, to be fair, that's not just disease, but it's, it's warfare uh, and other things. But certainly disease is the major variable there. Yeah, I was reading um, the, the Spanish missions of La Florida, um, and I was reading Kathy Deegan's chapter in there, and she was talking about how when there were epidemics, the Spanish would kind of group all the Native Americans in and around St. Augustine into one little group to kind right. of get them away from everybody, but that just made the disease spread um, amongst exactly. those, and so populations so dramatically increased. And when you're thinking about that, and then thinking about how I've been sitting in my house for two weeks, not having contact with anybody else, it's it's a really interesting correlate when you start comparing the situations, you know? Yeah, um, exactly. You know, you know, a term that archaeologists use now, this is common, you guys know, is to is a coalescent societies. And these are the Native Americans who are kind of having to band together, people of different ethnicities and so on. Right. And so you're seeing a lot of banding together throughout the Southeast, you're right, is reflected that, which again is a two-edged sword, you know, Indians congregating and you know, setting up a perfect 
petri lab for the spread of <laughs> right. population. Yeah. So reading through, we got we had your uh, your syllabus from your epidemics class. So we were doing all the readings from the class. <laughs> but um, reading through a lot of the the histories of a lot of these different epidemics all over the world, one commonality seems to be a desire to blame someone else for whatever epidemic is affecting you. What do you think about, you know, as an anthropologist, this like kind of push to always look for this kind of outside, outside, you know, to outsider to blame for this sort of a thing. It's really interesting to think about diseases in terms of what's different and what's the same. Yeah. And I saw an interesting quote attributed to an epidemiologist the other day that I'll have to remember for the next time I teach a class. And and he said, well, you know, when you've seen one pandemic, well, you've seen one pandemic. (laughs) And to him, they're like, they're all different in so many. Mm. But on the other hand, the cultural responses disease are interestingly similar and sometimes depressingly similar. And man, the blame game has to be one of those things where, in fact, I have to admit, I was kind of doing a little cheating. I was looking back at some of those notes before this, and I looked at a slide I show for the blame game, particularly during the time of syphilis. Now, syphilis is a kind of mystery disease because, uh, you know, the pathogen itself has been around for a very long period of time, probably thousands of years. But it broke out uh, as in a kind of in a venereal form a particularly virulent form in the 1400s and 1500s, which has led to these huge debates over, was it an old world disease? Did it originate mm-hmm. in the Americas or so on? Um, but whatever it was, this is a disease that's kind of the mascot or the banner for the blame game. And so the French called it the Italian disease. Uh, the um, Holland called it the Spanish disease. And parts <laughs> of Holland were, you know, a Spanish colony at that time. Turks called it the Christian disease, interestingly. Mm-hmm. So the common thing was, who are you warring with or who did you have it in for? And the other thing that goes along with that are these notions of internal purity. Surely, surely a disease that that's dreaded and nasty, there's no way that originated from my people. That had to come from someplace else. And right. so, you know, HIV AIDS, of course, is a sad example of that. Not only was it attributed to gay populations in the 1980s in the United States, but also populations who were... Uh, coming in from Haiti, for example, illegal mm-hmm. immigrants from Haiti. It was associated with Caribbean and a big surprise, black populations. You know, it's always marginalized populations that get blamed for that. So um, that, unfortunately, is a kind of a very, very, very old metaphor. Mm-hmm. Well, and we saw that really early on in this epidemic, too. I mean, um, you know, bringing uh, ethnicity into the situation as if right. as if exactly. um, it was somebody flipping a switch in China. Right, right. And it's not just a, it's not just race and ethnicity. Women are often the targets of these diseases. So, you know, venereal disease because it oftentimes was it wasn't quite so obvious necessarily, except in your genital area, until in its late stages. You know, in its early latent stages are kind of where you're relatively asymptomatic, particularly in the 1500s. It seems to have evolved a lot in the past couple of years, uh, but it, it became you know, it, but it, but ultimately it was this, it was this horrible disease. You know, people died very painfully from it. But it's early latent diseases. And people realized that oh, this is one of the diseases they knew what the mode of transmission was. They recognized mm-hmm. it was venereal disease, oddly enough, in the 1500s or so. Um, <laughs> so who are you going to blame? At the they put that together. <laughs> and who's more likely, you know, what portion of the population is going to be sneaky and have it in for other people? Right. Well, of course, it's going to be females who have Obviously, it in for yes. so women. very rapidly very became a target for, for, you know, not only even HIV AIDS women became a target for that. 
Yeah. One of the things you see in the accounts of the uh, bubonic plague in the literature of the era. So, you know, one of the classic works related to the bubonic plague is an, an Italian work known as Decameron, and yeah. <laughs> uh, it's the class divides. Mm. So this, this is a, it's kind of a historical fiction. And so part of it is based upon a number of relatively wealthy people who are fleeing Florence to go to their estates in the countryside. Um, and the anger that that, uh, you know, creates among the people who are left behind in this notion of, aren't we a community? Aren't we going to go through this together? I just read an article this week about a lot of the French rich. For whatever reasons, the wealthy in France seem to invest more in secondary homes than other nations in in, uh, Europe. And so a lot of them are fleeing. And again, we're seeing the same thing all over again, not only from the people from the towns that, you know, that they're leaving from, but also kind of the rural communities that they're coming to. And those people are really concerned about, people leaving the cities and bringing the coronavirus. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so even class divides become purely accented. And of course, yeah. one can be really cynical, but you see an incredible number of great stories of people putting their lives on the line throughout history, as we're seeing today as well. So there's a heartwarming you know, point to that. And, and so, you know, the, the, nasty, the, the nasty cases, um, they get highlighted because they're so shocking to us because we are yeah. social animals after all. Right. But one likes to think or wants to think that those are in the minority and the cases of heroism, I think, tend to be in the majority. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was a really good point. <laughs> and I think that's a great place to, to wrap it up. Um, how are you doing personally? Are you hanging in there and everything? <laughs> Here's my irony. I'm on, I've been on sabbatical since January. Oh, <laughs> my schedule's exactly the same. <laughs> That's, really That's really funny. Sitting around. Yeah. I have this schedule where, you know, I, I try to start writing around eight or eight 30 and that can, you know, the only thing that's changed is I can't go into school to pick up stuff quite as frequently. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Um, y'all are doing well too. So yeah. Hanging in yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Cobb, thank you so much for joining thank us you. on the material. Sure. Well, thanks podcast. for the invitation. It's a real honor to be asked here. Thanks. Y'all take thank care. You. Thank you. Yes. Take care. Stay Bye. well. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Big thank you to Dr. Cobb for coming on the Materialist podcast and talking about um, this subject. Super interesting. He's so yeah, that's great. I mean, it, it was very archaeological, but he's so good at conveying that information in like easily digestible ways. I it was it was great. Thank you so much, Charlie, for being on the show. Hold on, sorry, my cat just opened the door. Cats. <laughs> Which one's that? Pokey. Pokey. Can you like? Maybe they should wear necklaces with their names on them or something. (laughs) (laughs) BB is fat and Pokey is not fat. Okay. I think the other interesting aspect is his perspective from, because of his research interest in looking at that um, contact period um, in the Southeast. And it's just horrible to, to think about how these epidemics just swept through the populations of the native people in the southeast yeah and just the the impact that 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 had to just completely in some cases decimate whole villages and um really terrible yeah and what what i found was really interesting is that the response to the epidemics um on the native americans the disease rate and the death rate on the native americans and and different Europeans, whether it's the Spanish or the British or the French, they, they reacted differently to those epidemics. Like he said that the Spanish recognized really early that with every death of a Native American, an Indian person from this disease, that's one less 
person that could do work for them. Right. And so they tried to really um, stem the tide of the diseases, whereas the, the English and the French were really saw that as the deaths of the Native Americans as sort of kind of advantageous to their goals of, you know, eradicating the Native people from the population. Um, right. Yeah. And how it also, you know, as horrible as it was for Native populations, you know, here in the Americas, it also set the stage um, for the transatlantic slave trade and, right. um, you know, all these right. other sort of really horrible um, cultural changes that happened. So I was reading this book, um, the mission, the Spanish missions of La Florida, edited by Bonnie G. McEwen, um, and it, different chapters written by different people. Um, and this one chapter that was written by uh, Clark Spencer Larson on mission bioarchaeology. Uh, he writes, chief among the consequences of resettlement of native populations around mission centers was the establishment of conditions highly conducive to the spread of infectious diseases, both newly introduced like influenza, smallpox, and measles, as well as already existing diseases like tuberculosis and treponematosis. <laughs> syphilis is that type of disease. Uh, this change was likely accompanied by a decline in sanitation and an increase in water, uh, water source contamination and a deterioration in health. So these mission centers began to be sort of hubs for the diseases and what the Spanish, their ideas was to bring the Native Americans kind of into these missions and, and make them into Catholics, um, use their labor force. But that process uh, was also creating the perfect conditions for these diseases to spread more easily from person to person. Yeah, and um, that's another part that I found really interesting that we were talking about with Dr. Cobb is, you know, he was saying, you know, if you talk to an epidemiologist, it's like they say, like, when you understand one epidemic, like you understand that epidemic, right? Yeah, yeah. But I think when you look at... Um, when you look at all of these throughout human history, there are so many commonali commonalities that you can see in the way that people react to yeah. these sorts of events. And I've been, since I've been on, uh, been on lockdown, I started reading this book called um, The Journal of a Plague Year Ooh. by Daniel Defoe. Um, he wrote it in 720, 1722 um, about the 1665 plague outbreak in London. Wow. So, um, he actually, he was like only like a small kid when this plague happened in London. So it's kind of fictional in a sense, but he did take from some, you know, actual accounts of, of the plague that happened at that time. But it's just really interesting because there's so many commonalities you see between what was happening then in the 1600s with this bubonic plague outbreak and, you know, what we see now. You yeah. see, you know, people who are being quarantined in their homes, but then they're also like sneaking out to the like, <laughs> you know, get stuff and break the quarantine and then they get sick. Defoe, he talks about how like he wishes he would have gone and set aside more provisions, like, in, you know, gone to the supermarket or not. Toilet obviously. paper. <laughs> <laughs> um, he wishes that he would have, you know, gotten more stuff so he didn't have to keep going to the market all the time, um, that kind of a thing. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, so so it's really interesting um, in, in that way, and just seeing these kind of commonalities and how people 
deal with these sort of situations. And unfortunately, one of the other commonalities that we see and that we talked about with Dr. Cobb is this desire to to blame outsiders mm-hmm. and to, you know, to place the blame on like, okay, well, where did this virus come from? It obviously came from somewhere else because it couldn't have kind of, um, it couldn't have come from here. It mm-hmm. couldn't have been our people who are the ones who are spreading this um, contagion. And so um, I think it's important to be aware of that so that we can combat it in our current situation because we see that that same that same thing today. yeah you're absolutely right one of the first things that people do is start pointing fingers because they don't want to be responsible or it, the question of that there's nobody responsible um is, right. is um it's much harder for us to deal with than actually having a a, a perpetrator so let's not let fear, you know, run amok. Uh, let's kind of keep Here's things. the mind in- killer, guys. Here's yeah. the mind killer. <laughs> uh, just, just being indoors, uh, you know, or just locking down or not being able to go out and do things is causing enough anxiety. We don't need to start pointing fingers. Let's kind of trust in the science that's happening and we'll move through this. Yeah, we'll move through this. And like we've talked about this entire episode and Dr. Cobb talked about, this is something that has happened before. And if any time in history, um, we (laughs) have better science and better ways to deal with these situations. Now, Um, let's make the best choices. So this isn't prolonged and they're to minimize the damage. Yeah. So I have a a little, a quote from a journal of the plague year by Daniel Defoe. Like I said, it's written in, um, 1722. Here also, I ought to leave a further remark for the use of posterity concerning the manner of people's infecting one another, namely that it was not the sick people only from whom the plague was immediately received by others that were sound, but the well. To explain myself by the sick people, I mean those who were known to be sick, had their beds, had been under cure, or had swellings and tumors upon them, and the like. These everybody could beware of, They were either in their beds or in such condition as could not be concealed. By the well, I mean such as had received the contagion and had it really upon them and in their blood, yet did not show the consequences of it in their countenances. Nay, even were not sensible of it themselves, as many were not for several days. These breathed death in every place and upon everybody who came near them. Nay, their very clothes retained the infection Their hands would infect the things they touched. Now it was impossible to know these people, nor did they sometimes, as I have said, know themselves to be infected. These were the dangerous people. These were the people of whom the well people ought to have been afraid. But then on the other side, it was impossible to know them. So that's from 1922. And so I guess the takeaway is like, yes, we do we are lucky because we do have these, um, you know, technologies and medical technologies and um, a much better healthcare than people in the 1700s. But the commonality is that um, we can use the most basic technology, which is staying at home, quarantining ourselves and washing our hands. Wash your hands, people. (laughs) Washing our hands and having um, good hygiene. Yeah. So, um, you know, if someone in the 
1700s can understand that, you know, people can be infected and not know it and spreading disease. <laughs> we can also understand that and we can do our part to help, to help yeah. others. Yeah. And I think that's a great place to close it out. Thank you, Miss Becky. Thanks, Nigel. Uh, and thank you, listeners, for tuning in to our uh, episode today, episode 12. Um, you can find us on iTunes and Google Play and Podbean and Spotify. We are on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, please like us and share, um, and particularly iTunes, those of you that listen via um, Apple Podcasts, if you could, you know, Give us a, a, a five-star rating or any, you know, rating you decide is appropriate. And maybe comment that really boosts us up in the iTunes world. We really love social media interaction. Uh, there's a couple of people that I wanted to thank. So we had, um, we had a great comment on our Facebook. I want to thank Amy Alleman. She said, um, I'm really enjoying this podcast. I think pretty much anyone can enjoy the content, but as an archaeologist, I find it particularly engaging. Thanks, Amy. So, thanks, Amy. We appreciate it. And I really wanted to thank Jordan. I'm going to destroy your last name, Jordan. Jordan Borstelman from Crooked Path Forge. He's a blacksmith. He really enjoyed our tattoo podcast. He says, hey, dude, just listen to your podcast on tattoos. Very cool. So thank you, Jordan. Jordan is, uh, I did a, a trade with him. He made an ads for me and I traded him some pottery. So very cool. Thank you, Jordan. And we'll be happy to read um, your comments and give you a shout out. Um, if you guys interact with us, it'd be great. And honestly, uh, right now, you know, for the next two weeks or whatever, um, y'all got nothing better to do. Say howdy. <laughs> Say howdy. Um, we're, I'm trying to get some things going on Instagram as well. Stay tuned. So Wednesday, April 22nd from noon to 1 p.m., we are going to be having a conversation with staff from the Florida Museum of Natural History and Thompson Earth Systems Institute about one of our episodes, actually, episode 10, Dust to Dust, Chapter two. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, go back into the materialist archives and listen to that episode. It would be great. It's going to be a really cool thing. So I'm glad that we're involved. Um, so check it out. April 22nd from noon to 1 p.m. All of the information about how to log on. There's an Eventbrite listing. Uh, go to our Facebook page, the Florida Public Archaeology Network Central Facebook page and also the Materialists Facebook page for all the information. Just look for events and you'll find it. So hopefully we'll get to talk with Becca Burton again yeah. from Tessie, and that'll be a really awesome time. So uh, pay attention to that. Um, if you have any questions, you can uh, hook us up on social media, but you can also email us at the materialistpodcast at gmail.com. Um, a huge, huge, huge thank you to USF and the USF Department of Anthropology. Thank you so much for providing us <laughs> this opportunity. Um, big shout out to the other FPAN regions. Thank you, uh, FPAN. If you would like more information on FPAN, please go to fpan.us. As always, a huge thank you to uh, Have Gun Will Travel, the band that provided our intro music, Silver in the Age of Opulence. If you would like more information on this awesome band, please go to hgwtmusic.com or find them on Facebook at hgwtmusic.com. 
and they're doing actually uh, Matt Burke, the leader of uh, Have Gun, is doing um, an upcoming um, live session. He's done several of them from his house that are going to be playing on Facebook. So check that out again. It's HGWT Music on Facebook. Huge thank you to Dr. Charles Cobb. Uh, uh, and you know, if you'd like him for any more information on Dr. Cobb and his research, you can email us or you can just Google Charles Cobb and I'm sure you can find his email, his email information there. If you'd like any particular subjects that you want us to cover, shoot us an email. Let us know. We, we'd love to do research. Um, Becky and I seem to have endless, endless subjects to, that we want to talk about, um, but sometimes we miss ones that are, uh, you know, maybe right in front of our eyes. So if you think of something clever, give us a shout. We'll, we'll, we'll love to arrange a, a time to cover that. Yeah, and I think talking about like, you know, taking care of our personal mental health, it's it's really nice. I think doing like the podcast is like a really nice um, outlet for us. So yeah. <laughs> on a very, Absolutely. like, you know, a selfish um, level. <laughs> it's been good for us to keep doing the doing the podcast yeah absolutely absolutely i've been trying to work up some like mini episodes to fill in between the bigger episodes um as well so hopefully i'll be getting one of those out this next week but um if you would like information uh that we've talked about look at the show notes i put all the information in the show notes so check out that um and i think that's it yeah, and uh, thanks to our ancestors for uh, surviving <laughs> all the epidemics of yes. the past so that we could be here to be quarantined in our houses watching uh, yeah. Netflix all the right. time. Um, for all you who are watching Tiger King out there, just <laughs> those people in the plague, London plagues of the 1600s, they wish that they would have had um, Tiger King to watch. So right, <laughs> yeah. Count your yeah. blessings. And my ancestors uh, basically cover the entire planet, so I, I, I'm <laughs> loaded with all kinds of... Uh, yeah, you got it all. You got all the, the all the good immunity genes. Yeah, so here I am. <laughs> Finished Tiger King in two days. <laughs> but anyways, thanks guys. We'll catch you on the flippity flip. Yeah, stay well. Bye. Nineteen hundred twenty nine men and women you were dying from a disease. What the doctor called a flu. People die everywhere, death went creeping through the air. Father grown after six, sure was saying. It was God's almighty hand, he is judging this old man. North and south, east and west can be seen. Yes, he killed the rich and poor, and he's going to kill more. If you don't, turn away from your sin.
kill it for me, yeah. Maybe that's where I should end 